welcome to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds, a weekly podcast for pharmacists, physicians, physician assistants, and nurse practitioners who are interested in learning more about clinical pharmacology topics. I'm your host, Garrett Schramm, Director of Pharmacy Education and Academic Affairs at Mayo Clinic. To claim pharmacology CE credit or to get a copy of presentation slides, visit ce.mayo.edu slash pharmacy podcast. When it comes to infectious diseases, the discovery of newer antimicrobial agents that can overcome growing resistance patterns is ongoing. The tetracycline class of antimicrobials is not immune to these resistance concerns. On today's Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds podcast, we have Dr. Ashton Praska from Mayo Clinic Health System Eau Claire to analyze tetracycline-specific resistance mechanisms while discussing two newly developed tetracyclines, amatacycline and aravacycline, and the potential impact these new agents could have on clinical practice. The objectives for this presentation are going to be to describe tetracycline resistance mechanisms utilized by bacteria, identify how omatacycline and rabacycline can overcome these common tetracycline resistance mechanisms, and identify clinical scenarios where omatacycline and rabacycline could be considered for use. These are some abbreviations that will be used periodically throughout the presentation. First, I want to talk about antibiotic resistance and its impact on the healthcare system. Infections caused by bacteria that are resistant to multiple antibiotics, and this data was taken from 2017 by the IDSA, has led to 1.9 billion in healthcare costs, more than 400,000 days in the hospital, and more than 10,000 deaths in, in older adults. So as you can see from these statistics, antibiotic resistance is an area of great concern in the healthcare system, and one that promotes the development of new antibiotic therapy. Looking at tetracycline resistance specifically, the tetracycline class of drugs have a very broad spectrum of activity with many clinical applications but we see that their utility has declined throughout the years, and this is attributed to the emergence of antibiotic resistance. We see that resistance in bacteria tend to, tend to develop very quickly. For example, tetracycline was developed in 1954, and there were reports of resistance developing within two to three years of tetracycline's release. So this has led to an increase of emphasis of antibiotic development, such as the FDA incentivizing the FDA Fast Track program, which helps get newer agents onto the market in a faster. So looking at the tetracycline mechanism of action and resistance mechanisms. Tetracyclines enter bacterial cells in two potential ways. First way being passive diffusion through the bacterial membrane. And the second being an energy dependent active transport system. This transport system is thought to potentially be pH dependent. Once inside the bacterial cell, the tetracycline binds reversibly to the 30S ribosomal subunit. And once bound to this subunit, it blocks protein synthesis, which leads to a bacteriostatic effect. Looking at the chemical structures of some of our various generations of tetracyclines, what I'd like to note here is that our first and second generation tetracyclines, such as tetracycline, doxycycline, and minocycline, have a fairly basic backbone for a tetracycline structure. It's not until we move to our third and fourth generation agents, such as tidocycline, aravacycline, 
or omatocycline that we start to see structural vari variability on this tetracycline backbone. This variability is going to be important in some of our upcoming slides. Briefly touching on our tetracycline spectrum of activity, we know that we have some gram-positive coverage as well as gram-negative coverage. There is some anaerobic coverage. However, I would like to point out that tetracycline's usefulness for anaerobes um, has decreased, and this is due to the rapid development of resistance specifically in anaerobes. There are some exceptions to this rule, however, which we will touch on later. And then we also know that tetracyclines have atypical coverage, such as chlamydia, mycoplasma, and legionella. Looking at some of the common side effects of our tetracyclines, we have our gastrointestinal side effects, which we see nausea, vomiting, epigastric pain. We know that tetracyclines can increase photosensitivity, so we see skin erythema. Tetracyclines are also known to be hepatotoxic, so we can see elevated LFTs in our patients treated with tetracyclines. And then we do not use tetracyclines in pregnancy. They can inhibit the bone growth of a fetus, as well as cause tooth discoloration in some of our adolescents. Looking at drug-drug interactions for our tetracyclines, we know that the CYP3A4 inducers are our biggest interaction. Clinically, we see that amiodarone, carbamazepine, phenytoin, and phenobarbital. These CYP3A4 inducers decrease the effects of tetracyclines by increasing the metabolism in the body. I would also like to note that warfarin is another common drug-drug interaction, and we can see patients have varying ion levels when concurrently taking a tetracycline and warfarin. Moving on to our resistance mechanisms for bacteria, we see that there are four primary mechanisms of tetracycline resistance. The first resistance mechanism being tetracycline efflux. The second being binding site mutations. The third being ribosomal protection. And the fourth is enzymatic inactivation. I would like to note that once resistance develops to one tetracycline, this resistance is typically conferred to the entire class. However, there are a few exceptions to this rule, mainly in the third and fourth generation tetracyclines. So looking at our tetracycline-specific efflux, here we have our resistant bacterial cell, and then we have tetracycline molecules inside the cell dictated by the yellow hexagons. And so as we went over, we have our influx channels in which tetracycline molecules are able to enter our bacterial cell, and we know that they enter through active transport and passive diffusion. Now, once inside the cell, these resistant bacteria are able to utilize these efflux channels, which are shown with the red arrows, to actively pump out our tetracycline molecules from inside the cell. Typically, we see the TET-A and TET-B resistance genes in our gram-positive bacteria that express these efflux channels. For our gram-negative bacteria, we see that the TET-L and the TET-K genes are expressed to efflux our tetracycline molecules. TET-A, TET-B, and TET-K are pumps that are all able to recognize tetracycline, minocycline, and doxycycline. Looking at our next mechanism of resistance, we have our tetracycline-specific binding site mutations. And here we have our mechanism of action of tetracycline. At the very bottom, we have our 30S ribosomal subunit with our mRNA template. And what tetracyclines are able to do is bind to our 30S ribosomal subunit 
and block the binding of our amino acetyl tRNA. Now with bacteria that have binding site mutations, they have either mutations or deletions on their 30S subunit, which decreases the affinity of tetracycline, so it's no longer able to bind and block the amino acetyl tRNA from binding. So frequent binding site mutations. Some bacteria have mutations in the 16S ribosomal subunit, which is similar to our 30S ribosomal subunit, which is able to confer resistance to tetracyclines as well. And those are our Helobacter pylori, mycoplasma, and streptococcus pneumonia. For our mutations and deletions in the 30S ribosomal subunit, we have mostly gram-positive bacteria, such as our bacillus, enterococcus, and staphylococcus aureus. Other resistant bacteria with mutations and deletions in the 30S ribosomal subunit are our Klebsiella pneumoniae, our E. coli, and Acinetobacter species. Looking at our third mechanism of resistance is our ribosomal protection. And we'll go back to our tetracycline mechanism of action diagram. And you'll see now that we have added our RPPs. Our RPPs are our ribosomal protection proteins. And what these are able to do are to competitively inhibit tetracycline from binding to the 30S ribosomal subunit. It is able to interrupt the stacking of the tetracycline ring which then promotes resistance. We typically see that bacteria that express these RPPs are resistant to tetracycline, minocycline, and doxycycline. Tetracyclines that contain side chains off of the C9 position of their D-ring, such as tigacycline, omatacycline, and aravacycline, are able to retain their inhibitory and antibacterial activities despite the presence of these RPPs. Looking at our fourth mechanism of resistance is enzymatic inactivation of tetracyclines. So what we have here at the very bottom is our four-ring structure of a tetracycline molecule. And bacteria that are able to inactivate tetracyclines express flavin-dependent monooxygenase, or FDM. You can try. Which is able to inactivate tetracyclines with the addition of a hydroxyl group between our ring structures. And what we see here is the yellow arrow for our FDM molecule, points to where in the tetracycline molecule it is able to add this hydroxyl group. By adding this hydroxyl group, it breaks the ring structure open, thereby inactivating the tetracycline molecule. The gene that encodes our flavin-dependent monooxygenase is frequently the TET-X gene, which is expressed by Enterobacterales pseudomonas. So this will take us to our first question. Which of the following mechanisms are utilized by tetracycline-resistant bacteria? And we have A, the TET-A gene, B, the TET-K gene, C, the TET-X gene, and D, all the above. Okay, so everybody's been paying attention. Yes, the correct answer is D, all the above, are TET-A and TET-K oh. genes. So the TET-A and TET-K genes were expressed by bacteria that we're able to efflux tetracycline molecules from, outside, from inside the cell, whereas our TETX gene was expressed by bacteria that have flavin-dependent monooxygenases that are able to enzymatically inactivate tetracyclines. So next, we'll move on to the next portion of this presentation, where we will talk about omatocycline and aravacycline. So first, we'll look at the route to approval for 
Omodocycline, it was developed by Paratech Pharmaceuticals in 2018, with notable phase three trials being the OASIS-1 trial, the OASIS-2 trial, and the OPTIC trial. It does have ongoing trials in pyelonephritis and cystitis. For arabocycline, it was developed by Tetraphase Pharmaceuticals in 2018, with notable phase three trials being the IGNITE-1 trial and the IGNITE-4 trial. Both patents for these molecules expire in 2029, and both of these agents were granted FDA fast-track approval in order to enter the market quicker and bypass some of the additional FDA regulations. Looking at our dosing for olmadocycline, we have our two FDA-approved indications, which is community-acquired pneumonia and skin and soft tissue infections. For IV treatment of CAP, it's 200 milligrams as a single dose, or 100 milligrams twice daily on day one, then 100 milligrams once daily. Our oral option is 300 milligrams twice daily on day one, with a transition to 300 milligrams once daily. Skin and soft tissue infections, we have our IV, which requires a loading dose of 200 milligrams or 100 milligrams twice daily, with a transition to maintenance dosing of 100 milligrams once daily. Our oral option is a loading dose of 450 milligrams on days one and two, with a transition to maintenance dosing of 300 milligrams once daily. I would also like to note that omodocycline has no renal or hepatic dosing adjustments. Moving on to arabocycline, we have our FDA-approved indication of intra-abdominal infection, which is dose one milligram per kilogram every 12 hours. There is no renal adjustments. However, there are hepatic dysfunction adjustments that need to be made. If the hepatic dysfunction is mild to moderate for child Q score A or B, there's no modification necessary. For severe hepatic dysfunction or child Q category C, it's one milligram per kilogram every 12 hours for day one then one milligram per kilogram every 24 hours. I would also like to note that this is frequently dosed based on actual body weight. However, there are discussions on whether actual body weight should be used in very obese patients. Currently, there's not a lot of data looking at the use of adjusted body weight. So now looking at how omocycline and rabocycline overcome resistance. As previously discussed, they have conformational changes on the C7 and C9 carbons of our tetracycline D-ring. And with these conformational changes, we see a decreased efflux outside of the cell, as well as increased binding to the ribosome, specifically that 30S subunit. So the inhibitory effects of these molecules remain unaffected because the drug is able to bind to the ribosome in a unique way so that the ribosomal protection proteins are no longer able to, to boot them off of that subunit. So looking at omodocycline and aramocycline's structures, we see our conformational changes here. The very top being our C7 carbon. So we see with aramocycline, we have a halogen group on the top, whereas for omodocycline, we have our amino group. And then off of our C9 carbon, we see these long chains and these help increase the affinity that these molecules have for binding to the ribosomal subunit so that they are no longer able to be kicked off by our ribosomal protection proteins. Looking at our spectrums of activity for these molecules, omodocycline still has gram-positive coverage as well as gram-negative coverage, but this excludes pseudomonas. Omodocycline has atypical coverage, 
as well as NTM, which is non-tuberculosis mycoplasma. For rabocycline, we see similar gram-positive coverage. And then we have gram-negative coverage, which also excludes pseudomonas. However, it is able to cover Acinetobacter species as well as Enterobacterales. We also see that arabocycline has very reliable anaerobic coverage. So as I previously discussed, tetracyclines frequently have unreliable coverage due to rapid resistance rates. But arabocycline tends to have much more reliability when covering anaerobes. And then we also see that arabocycline has NTM coverage as well. So question two, which of the following common resistance mechanisms are homocycline and aravacycline able to overcome? A, being enzymatic inactivation, B, being efflux pumps, C, being binding site mutations, and D, all the above. The correct answer here is actually B, efflux pumps. With the conformational changes on the C7 and C9 carbons of the tetracycline D-ring, we see that they are able to overcome efflux pumps as well as ribosomal protection proteins. So we see that enzymatic inactivation and binding site mutations are still two ways in which bacteria can be resistant to the tetracycline molecules. Moving on to the third portion of our presentation, which is going to be reviewing literature. We will be reviewing four trials that helped homocycline and aravocycline achieve FDA approval. The first being the OPTIC trial, and then we'll review the OASIS-2 trial. So these first two trials, we'll look at homocycline, and then we have the IGNITE-1 trial and the IGNITE-4 trial, which will look at the use of aravocycline. So our first trial, which is the OPTIC trial, which is homocycline for community-acquired bacterial pneumonia, this was a double-blind trial comparing homodocycline versus moxifloxacin with an IV to PO transition. So patients received three days of IV therapy and then were subsequently transitioned to oral treatment for a total duration of seven to 14 days. The primary endpoint of this trial was defined as clinical response, which was improvement in two of the four symptoms. So our symptoms being cough, sputum production, chest pain, and shortness of breath. Patients had to have no worsening of symptoms for 72 to 120 hours. The results of this trial found that homodocycline was non-inferior to moxifloxacin in treating community-acquired bacterial pneumonia. Now, further analyzing this trial, there are some concerns that arise. The first being choice of comparator. Frequently, fluoroquinolones are not utilized as first-line therapy for community-acquired pneumonia. Typically, we think of a beta-lactam with the addition of doxycycline or azithromycin used as our first-line treatment for community-acquired pneumonia. The next concern is the duration of therapy. Typically, 7 to 14 days is, is utilized in our hospital-acquired pneumonias. Whereas for our community-acquired pneumonias, we frequently think of a treatment duration of five to potentially seven days. Moving on to our next trial, the OASIS-2 trial, which is homodocycline for acute bacterial skin and skin structure infections. This was a phase three double-blind multi-centered randomized control trial that looked at eligible adults with acute bacterial skin and skin structure infections. Patients were randomly assigned to receive homodocycline or linazolid 
with the primary endpoint being an investigator-assessed clinical response. Patients were treated for 7 to 14 days and then assessed after treatment. This assessment was based on a physician assessment as well as negative cultures. And what this trial found was that omatocycline was non-inferior to linazolid in treating our acute bacterial skin and skin structure infections. Now, similar to our first trial, the optic trial, there are some concerns over choice of comparator. Linazolid is frequently not a first-line agent that we would reach for when treating a skin and soft tissue infection. Frequently, we think of an early gen tetracycline, such as minocycline or doxycycline, as an appropriate first choice, with linazolid being used as a secondary or tertiary agent um, based on susceptibility testing or if a severe allergy may be present. Moving on to our IGMEG-1 trial, which was investigating assessing the efficacy and safety of arabocycline versus erdipenem in complicated intra-abdominal infections. And so again, this was a randomized, double-blind, multi-center study that evaluated arabocycline versus erdipenem. The mean duration of treatment was seven days, with the primary endpoint being a test of cure evaluation, which was conducted 25 to 31 days after the dose of first, after their first dose of drug. The test of cure was a physician assessment and the presence of negative cultures. The results of this trial found that arabocycline was not inferior to erdipenem in treating our, intra, or our complicated intra-abdominal infections. Again, this has concerns over comparator, with the main one being the choice of erdipenem. Frequently for our complicated intra-abdominal infections, carbapenems are not our first-line agents. We typically think of in the hospital that we use or with flagell or potentially zoocyte to treat our complicated intra-abdominal infections prior to resorting to our carbapenem. Moving on to our Ignite 4 trial, which kind of piggybacks off of our Ignite 1 trial. We have arabocycline versus muripenem in the treatment of our complicated intra-abdominal infections. And this was a randomized double-blind trial in hospitalized patients with complicated intra-abdominal infection. These patients received either arabocycline or muripenem for a total treatment duration of four to 14 days. The primary endpoint, again, was a test of cure evaluation conducted 25 to 31 days after the first dose of study drug. And what this trial found was that arabocycline was not inferior to miropenem in treating complicated intra-abdominal infections. And once again, there are concerns that arise out of this trial. First one being choice of comparator, like we talked about in Ignite 1, with choosing a carbapenem as first-line therapy for our intra-abdominal infections. But the second concern that arises out of this trial is the main treatment for intra-abdominal infections. All patients that were enrolled in this study received source control prior to being included. And we know that with intra-abdominal infections, the primary treatment is to achieve source control prior to antibiotic therapy. So a brief literature summary, we have our optic trial, which looked at omatocycline and moxifloxacin for CAP. We have our OASIS-2 trial, which looked at omatocycline versus linazolid for our acute bacterial skin and skin structure infections. We have our IGNITE-1 trial, which is arabocycline compared to erdipenem for intra-abdominal infections, and IGNITE-4, which looked at arabocycline versus miropenem for our intra-abdominal infections. 
And the main takeaway that I want to convey to you all is that the choice of comparator was not up to clinical practice. Frequently, they chose comparators that were potentially second or third line agents for these types of infections. So now shifting gears and looking at the true place in therapy for R2 agents. Omonocycline is typically limited to the outpatient setting as an oral alternative for multi-drug resistant organisms, which include mycobacteria. For rabocycline, we see a little bit more broad use in clinical practice or polymicrobial infections with resistant organisms that rabocycline is able to uniquely cover, such as our ESBLs, our anaerobes, our VRE, and or MRSA. We also see rabocycline's used in select carbapenem-resistant infections, such as NDM. And NDM is our new deadly beta-metallo-beta-lactamase. Our acinetobacter or stenotrophomonas infections for patients who are intolerant or resistant to other agents, as well as mycobacterial infections that do not have good therapeutic options. This data was taken straight from the antimicrobial quick guide for Mayo Clinic. So we can think that Mayo Clinic tends to replicate clinical practice. So looking at some trials for why we use these particular agents for these particular infections. So omonocycline for mycobacterium abscess infections. This was a multi-center retrospective observational case series that occurred at six different medical centers. It looked at omonocycline in part of a multi-drug regimen for the treatment of mycobacterium abscess infections. They evaluated these patients based on clinical success, which was a lack of clinical or radiographic worsening, a lack of omonocycline treatment alter alteration, which is treatment failure, no microbiological relapse, and a lack of culture persistence. So to further clarify on the three positive cultures, typically when treating mycobacterium, three cultures are taken from a patient with that third culture being kind of the tiebreaker. So if a patient had three positive cultures, obviously they would be positive for the infection. If they have two positive cultures, they would also be considered positive for the infection. If the patient only has one positive culture or no positive cultures, then they are considered negative for the infection. And what this trial found was that 75% of patients were able to achieve clinical success. Moving on to aravacycline. This was an evaluation of aravacycline in community and academic hospitals. And this was a retrospective multi-center evaluation of aravacycline, which included 66 patients and they measured clinical improvement, which was defined as improvement in imaging, defervescence, which is resolution of fever, resolution of leukocytosis, and microbiological eradication. And what this trial found was that in 95.5% of patients, they achieved clinical success. Now diving a little bit further into this trial, we see that 67.5% of patients had what the researchers referred to as difficult to treat organisms, which we see was defined as our carbapenem-resistant enterobacteriales, our vancomycin-resistant enterococcus, our methicillin-resistant staphylococcus, our coag-negative staphylococci, and our carbapenem-resistant acinetobacter. So looking at our clinical relevance, we see that monocycline is used for multi-drug-resistant mycobacterium infections, 
its cost, and this is actual wholesale price, is about $260 per tablet, and tablet being 150 milligrams, $430 per vial, which is 100 milligrams in a vial. And then aravacycline, we see that it's used for multi-drug resistant infections, such as VRE, ESVLs, MRSA, and NDM. Its cost is $100 per vial with 50 milligrams per vial. Now we see that amonocycline is not frequently used, and many of you might not even be aware or even have used it, which is because of resistance patterns. Here in the Midwest, we have very favorable resistance patterns, um, whereas in areas down south or out west, we see they have stronger resistance patterns. Um, so we see that these agents are used much more frequently in those areas as opposed to here in the Midwest. Looking at our clinical relevance and tying all of this together, why would these agents not be used for their FDA-approved indications? Well, amatocycline and aravacycline are used in a very small portion of clinical infections. These infrequent types of infections make it very hard to achieve adequate patient populations for FDA approval studies. In turn, these FDA approval trials were used to help get quick approval of these agents while also demonstrating their broad spectrum of activity if we look at their comparators. As discussed with amatocycline used from mycobacterium infections, we see that the off-label trial only included 12 patients, as opposed to the CAP trial, which had around 800 patients, or the acute bacterial skin and skin structure infections, which included around 730 patients. For aravacycline, we see that the off-label trial only included 66 patients, whereas the IGNITE-1 and IGNITE-4 trials had around 300 to 500 patients, respectively. So what we see is that in order to get these agents approved and to get the right amount of patients for their population, they had to choose infections that have a higher infection rate, as opposed to some of these more subtle infections that don't have as many patients suffering from them. Now we'll get to our third question here. In which of the following scenarios would it be clinically appropriate to consider the off-label use of oral homodocycline for treatment? A, being methicillin resistant Staphylococcus aureus. B, being non-tuberculosis mycobacteria. C, being vancomycin resistant enterococci. And D, pseudomonas. The correct answer here is B, the non-tuberculosis mycobacteria as we saw from our Mayo Clinic antimicrobial guidelines, as well as our off-label trials, we see that omatocycline is frequently used for our mycobacteria infections. So our methicillin-resistant staph aureus, our VRE and pseudomonas are not options to use omatocycline. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, subscribe using iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. Thank you for listening to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds. Join us weekly for more exciting clinical pharmacology topics.